Hello and welcome to this episode of Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sunderland and Talking Migration is supported by the Centre for Research in the Social Sciences at the University of Huddersfield. In this episode, we will be discussing whether there is a trade-off between migration and equal citizenship, as well as the situation for the displaced Rohingya. On to our first topic. The economist Branko Milanovic has recently argued that in order to increase migration from poorer countries to rich ones, the rights of migrants should be limited. He argues that since migrants are better off if they are allowed to work in a richer state, it's a fair trade-off that many of their rights can be limited by the receiving state. In his book The Price of Rights, Professor Martin Roos, Associate Professor of Political Economy at the Oxford University, has also argued that there does indeed exist such a trade-off between increased labour migration and migrants' access to the welfare state. Here to discuss whether there are any moral and political problems with such a trade-off is Professor Chris Bertram, Professor of Social and Political Philosophy at the University of Bristol. Chris Bertram wrote a response to Branko Milanovic on his blog, where he claims that Milanovic advocates the reinvention of apartheid. To begin, I asked Martin Roos to um, discuss whether there is a trade-off between migration and the welfare state and whether richer states should restrict the rights of migrants in order to let more in. Well, there's a long-standing question in political science and social policy uh, about the relationship between immigration and the welfare state. And the idea that there can be a tension between admitting migrants and giving them access to social rights is is quite an old one. Starting with uh, Gary Freeman, political scientist, uh, in in a paper in 1986, where he basically suggested that um, open borders um, and uh, equal access to the welfare state for migrants um, are incompatible policies. And um, others have said that uh, the incompatibility arises because of um, financial constraints, uh, pressures on the welfare state. Um, There's literature that talks about the impact of immigration and solidarity and all of that. In my own work, I've looked at this issue empirically, and I've looked at the characteristics of labor immigration policies around the world, and I have found a trade-off, a tension between openness and some rights for migrants. So countries that tend to be more open to admitting migrants tend to be more restrictive with regard to some, some rights. And um, in countries that are liberal democracies, the rights that are most affected by this trade-off tend to be social rights. So access to the welfare state, uh, um, access to social housing, for example. In countries that are not liberal democracies, we're also talking about restrictions of civil and political rights. So in the Gulf states, for example, or in Singapore, um, I mean, these countries are very open to admitting migrant workers, but at the same time, they severely restrict migrants' rights And these rights restrictions also involve very basic rights. So in Singapore, for example, if you're female and a low-skilled worker, worker, you have to undergo mandatory pregnancy checks every six months. You're not allowed to get married to a Singaporean resident and so on. But in liberal democracies, I think um, it is clear that there is some tension between immigration and the welfare state. So the question really is, what do you do about that? How do you respond to that from, from an ethical point of view? And um, what I've been arguing is that, um, yes, more migration and uh, more equal rights are both good things from a global justice point of view. Uh, Development economists argue that 
uh, there's no more effective strategy for raising the incomes of people in poor countries than to give them a job in a rich country. Uh, at the same time, obviously, we've got um, a number of migrant rights organizations um, rightly highlighting the importance of equal rights. But the fact that there's a trade-off means that you cannot always have both more migration, more rights, and a choice needs to be made. Uh, different people will make this choice, uh, this choice differently depending on what their ethical framework is. My own view is that um, I think uh, migrants do not benefit from equality of rights in a particular high-income country if they cannot access that country in the first place. So I would support some temporary restrictions on a few specific rights for migrant workers uh, in the welfare state. And I think the kinds of rights restrictions that I would find um, most admissible fr from an ethical point of view are uh, restrictions of um, non-contributory welfare benefits. So those are benefits that uh, high-income countries grant um, to people uh, based on need, because they are poor, rather than because they have contributed. So it's these types of um, rights that I think uh, can be restricted, I think, from a moral point of view, for some time. I do, not, I do not endorse a policy that restricts rights for a long time, for more than three or four years. But if some of these selected and temporary restrictions help um, us to liberalize labor migration across countries, then I think that is a good thing and it would be of great benefits to migrants and their families. Thanks. Chris, what do you think? Is there a trade-off and, uh, and would you support such temporary restrictions as well? Uh, well, I mean, first thing to say is that I am not uh, an empirical social scientist um, and I don't want to dispute the basic empirical claim that people like Martin and, for that matter, Branko Milanovic make, namely that there is in the world in which we live a trade-off between an openness to immigration and the extensiveness of rights that states grant to immigrants. Um, so my own perspective on, on this is, is rather a normative one, concerned with what we're permitted to do, morally speaking. Um, I think I'd also want to add, enter a caveat, which is to say that personally I'm very dubious about many of the claims states make about their rights to exclude would-be migrants anyway. But since I think you know, an open borders or near open borders view is completely off the current political agenda, um, at some risk of, of, of tension with what I'll go on to say, I'll proceed on the assumption that states do have the right to control their borders and regulate immigration. But which states have this right? Well, um, I think roughly speaking, legitimate states, and that's to say states which protect the human rights of their citizens and residents, and which respect the human rights of outsiders and also are governed by a more or less democratic process. Um, and as such, states have a particular obligation to ensure that when they exercise authority over the people on their territory, when they subject those people to the uh, possibility of coercion, they do so in accordance with defensible principles of justice and they respect everyone's human rights. Now, if people have a human right to be treated in some way, that's not something to be lightly sacrificed and certainly not something to be sacrificed for some gain in aggregate income or well-being. So one thing to say about proposals based on the idea of a rights immigration trade-off is that they aren't going to be permissible if it's the case that people are being denied a status that they have a human right to. 
and one such status is the right to membership of the society, a right that people can gain a moral entitlement to based on their social membership of that society or on their long-term subjection to its laws. Um, so we don't think it would be justifiable to reduce the rights of native-born citizens for an aggregate gain in welfare, and the same should go for other people who also have a moral claim to membership. As for other claims, say to labour market rights, something similar goes. In a democracy, we've got an obligation not to expose people to a significant risk of human rights violations, and we know that many elements of temporary worker visas, such as those that tie people to particular employers, leave them open to abuse and, and exploitation of various kinds. So we have a duty not to put in place right, rights restrictions to, that have this feature. On the question of contributory, non-contributory benefits, well, I think, you know, states do have a discretion to set up their um, welfare systems in um, the way they want, roughly speaking. And um, I think, you know, it's perfectly legitimate to put in place contributory schemes. And that would mean that people who haven't contributed, so people who've just arrived, wouldn't benefit from, from such schemes. So uh, I think the, the, there's not such a big gap between me and Martin on that point as might appear. Right, thanks. So what do you think, Martin, just to go back a little bit on this, what do you think about the the, the potential risk of exploitation of migrant workers in a, in a system of some rights restrictions? Well, I think it's a very, very serious point. And Chris, of course, is right that uh, many uh, temporary migration programs and labor migration policies more generally uh, have not done a very good job at all in, in putting in place safeguards against exploitation. And the fact that most migrants are tied uh, through their work permits to specific employers is a very s serious issue. Um, so I think that it will be in the receiving country's interest to grant uh, migrants um, almost all uh, labor rights, um, because what you don't want is to bring in migrant workers uh, that can be employed with fewer rights and therefore um, uh, in a cheaper way, and they could then undercut domestic workers. So I think there's a very strong argument for equality when it comes to labor rights, with the possible exception of this issue of complete freedom of movement, complete freedom of employment. I think there has to be some restriction in terms of the sector of employment. And the simple reason is that uh, many countries want labor migration in the first place because they have specific shortages in certain sectors. So there could be a shortage of in nursing, or there could be shortage in engineering or in agriculture. And, um, you know, immigrants are admitted to uh, help address these shortages. If you cannot uh, ensure that migrants actually work in these occupations uh, or sectors, then the rationale of bringing migrants in the first place, some of it goes away. But so the main, the main um, trade-off argument I'm making really involves uh, the welfare state. And um, I think um, Chris is pointing to a very important issue here with regard to uh, contributory, non-contributory uh, welfare states. I mean, that's often an argument that's, that's made that, well, you know, rather than restricting migrants' access to the welfare state, why don't we just change the welfare state? Make it more contributory. Um, so, you know, have more social insurance programs. Social insurance programs that require a contribution before you get a benefit are inherently more exclusionary toward migrants than programs like like you have it, for example, in Britain, that are more based on need. 
That's not because they were designed for the purpose of excluding migrants, but they were designed um, having in mind the idea that you have to contribute before you get something out. So everybody has to contribute something. So that's why countries that have more contributed welfare states find it easier to absorb larger numbers of, of migrants, especially if those migrants end up in low-wage jobs. But the question, of course, is, well, you know, what comes first? Should we restrict migrants' rights um, in terms of access to the welfare state, or should we change the whole welfare state for everybody? And that's where people disagree, because it depends entirely what perspective you're taking. Do you take a global perspective, or do you take a national perspective? And the counter-argument to the idea that you change the welfare state is that a lot of people say, well, you know, why should we change our national welfare state uh, to accommodate immigrants? Uh, maybe it is the case that we like the fact that we have a relatively non-contributory welfare state that um, gives out benefits based on need um, rather than on prior contribution. But I think that's the terrain of, of the debate. But Chris is making an important point, and I think um, economists, I think, who have highlighted the trade-off have, have often not thought hard enough about um, uh, the different perspectives and, and the ethics of this issue. Chris, what do you think about this um... Uh, this trade-off and this potential sort of sacrifice of the univer universal welfare state, if you want, uh, would that be a kind of more morally permissible or a better moral option if that means that more people that m more people could migrate? Um, well, um, I'm tempted by that kind of answer. Um, I think there are some, possibly some empirical issues there which I'm not um, sufficiently well informed about. So um, if it were the case that a non-contributory scheme, for example, were much cheaper to run and more efficient, um, then there might be some trade-offs there, which might mean you want, want, might want to stick with um, a non-contributory scheme, even though you know, some people... Um, would benefit from it who hadn't been paying kind of general taxation for a while or whatever. So I think there are some, some empirical issues there. Um, but as I say, I'm not really competent to evaluate those. Yeah, and another issue that's kind of related. So, um, so one of the reasons why people want to hold on to... Um, uh, maybe the European social model more broadly or m m a bit more narrow, the, specifically the universal welfare states, is that a lot of people are worried that if we start to differentiate between uh, migrants and non-migrants in terms of entitlements and rights, then we create sort of parallel uh, societies and sacrifice social cohesion. So I guess here there's it's both an, an empirical claim but also a kind of moral claim that... Um, if if migration means that we will have uh, less cohesive societies, then then we should have less migration. So, what do you both make of make of that? I don't know who wants to go first. Maybe Chris. Uh, okay, so so I mean, what one thing I think that's that's quite noticeable in the past few years um, is that you know we we've started to move in lots of you know, Western liberal democracies, um, away from a system of kind of universal citizenship, universal equal citizenship, to a system where various categories of people have their citizenship rights eroded and they enjoy a status of what Elizabeth Cohen's called semi-citizenship. Um, 
And that's taken all kinds of forms. So you have, for example, in the United States, the you know, exclusion of felons from voting. Um, that would be one manifestation of that. You have the various citizenship deprivation proposals that have been put in place um, in various countries, the UK, Canada, France have all talked about such schemes, and the UK uh, has such a scheme, uh, a scheme which, um, which exposes um, some citizens, but not all citizens, to the threat of having their citizenship revoked. Uh, that's to say naturalized citizens. So we've got this general drift to undermining equality of citizenship, and I think it would be enormously damaging to um, social cohesion and the rule of law, for that matter, in liberal democracies, if there were more, um, more elements of that thrown on the fire, as it were, if we had further differentiations of citizenship. So uh, that's, that's what's worrying me there. Mm. Martin, what do you think? Well, I think what, what Chris is saying is true. At the same time, I would say that I think we need to... Um, distinguish uh, between different types of rights restrictions and the impacts uh, of those on our community and what we consider to be an equal society. Of course, when it comes to social policy within high-income countries, there's all kinds of distinctions that are being made. Um, you know, lo lone mothers or people with children um, get all kinds of different rights. The welfare state expands and shrinks at different times. So there's all kinds of distinctions made in terms of the welfare rights that citizens have. Um, now, you know, um, if you say uh, we deny migrants um, a very basic uh, fundamental right, um, um, I don't know, say the right to hold on to the passports or uh, the right to equal treatment um, and, and basic civil and political rights, uh, I mean, that would constitute a, a fundamental violation of what most liberal democracies think they're about. Now, on the other hand, if you say we, we put a three-year limit on migrants' access to specific non-contributory welfare benefits, uh, then I would argue, well, you know, does that, does that restriction really change the nature of our community? Does that change our sense of um, equality? And I think those are the kinds of discussions that need to be had. And one shouldn't forget that if you accept that there is this trade-off between openness and rights, then, you know, insisting on equality, complete equality of rights comes at the price of more restrictive immigra immigration policies. So that means you exclude more people from admission. And if you um, talk about the ethics of the issue and you take a cosmopolitan view, so you, you, you take into account the fact that you exclude large numbers of people from accessing your labor market and that these people would greatly benefit economically from working in your country, then I think the ethical evaluation uh, becomes much more complicated. And I'm not sure that um, we can exclude people in the name of um, insistence of complete uh, equality. And, you know, from the sending country's point of view, this argument for equality and inclusion sometimes looks like uh, blatant protectionism. Uh, so it, just, it just means that, um, you, know, uh, you know, you don't want to let our workers in because you say you cannot treat them equally. So I'm not trying to reject the, 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 the normative argument in the way that some people make, is that we want to have equality and we want to keep our community and we cannot accept any sort of um, uh, people with fewer rights. But I don't think that that's the obvious normative response to this dilemma. And, uh, you know, if you think about 
migrants who are excluded, um, people in low-income countries who are excluded from labor markets in high-income countries. And if you think about the very large benefits that migration would create for people who are currently excluded from the labor market in the high-income countries, then I think uh, the issue becomes more complicated. Mm. I mean, you both... Um, sorry, Chris, did you want to come in there? Well, I just wanted to come in to, to, to say a couple of things there. Uh, so I don't think there's such a big gap between um, Martin and me as might appear. Um, and one reason I don't think there's a big gap is because Martin rightly makes this differentiation between you know, some rights which are core rights, which we want everybody on the territory to have, and then other rights which are perhaps more negotiable. Um, so I don't disagree with Martin that it would be legitimate with respect to some uh, welfare rights to have some kind of time qualification. Um, I think that's entirely kind of within the democratic purview of states. But other rights like um, equality before the law, right to due process, and ultimately, you know, rights to acquire citizenship and so on, um, those are, you know, those are um, in a different category. Um, so when we're talking about trade-off, we need to work out what's the trade-off between, um, and some rights might be negotiable, and some rights are going to be more basic. Um, the other thing that I, uh, I kind of want to put in the conversation is that the way we're framing this question of kind of ethics and policy, um, because you know one way, one way of looking at things, um, policymakers face a, a feasibility constraint. And the feasibility constraint is, is just constituted by the attitudes of the, the local and native population, the existing citizens. We can't admit more migrants in a more, on more equal terms because the locals just won't wear it. But I, I'm not sure that that's the right way to approach things. After all, we're talking, if we're talking about democracies, the people ultimately responsible for policy are the people themselves. So we can't really can invoke our own kind of collectively unjust attitudes, as it were, um, as a reason for some policy you know, not being uh, acceptable. Um, there seems to be a, a, a kind of incoherence of perspective involved in doing that kind of thing. Right. So even if... So, so are you saying that this uh, a lot of these worries about this trade-off are based more on on the attitudes and what people are unwilling to accept um, and share the welfare state with migrants, and that that shouldn't be a reason uh, that that we include. Yeah. So I think in in certainly in in Milanovic's version of the trade-off. Um, the, there's definitely a feasibility constraint which is given by the attitudes of the domestic population, the population of the, the receiving country. Um, but, you know, if people have certain kind of basic entitlements, certain basic rights, say, you know, for example, a claim to citizenship after they've been living under the laws for a sufficient amount of time, we can't really invoke, you know, uh, if, if they have that claim, a claim that that is that we have a duty to recognize we can't cite our unwillingness to accept them as some kind of further independent reason for their exclusion right what do you make of this martin well um i would agree that i don't think you could base the whole argument of a trade-off based on public opinion 
um, um, what I'm saying uh, in my work is that um, the trade-off is based on some um, calculations that policymakers uh, make about uh, costs and benefits of different types of, of policies. And, uh, of course, that, that, that means that I do say that when policies are being made, um, that there is some rationality in these policies. That means that policymakers do think about the costs and benefits of granting uh, specific rights to, to different types of migrants. I'm not saying that just because a right is costly in the short run, that it should not be granted. Of course, there are many reasons why we might want to grant a right, no matter what the costs. But I'm saying that in practice, the way policymaking works in many countries is that uh, some of these costs and benefits do matter. It's not just um, public um, public opinion. But I do agree uh, with, with Chris on, on, on many things that he said. And, and one important question is the question is, well, you know, if there's a trade-off at the national level, can it, can it be overcome? Can the trade-off be overcome? And, and one interesting um, uh, example here is, of course, the uh, free, free movement in the European Union. Because, you know, in, with free, free movement rules, if you're an EU worker, you have unrestricted labor migration across EU countries and you have equal access to the welfare state, as long as you qualify as a worker. And um, so EU is a type of exception, exceptionalism um, uh, in view of these uh, trade-offs that we have identified um, around the world with regard to more general labor immigration policies. And it's precisely this combination of open borders and equal access to the welfare state that has now come under pressure in these current debates. And um, it's perhaps no coincidence that it's the UK with its flexible labor market and relatively non-contributive welfare state that has been at the forefront of demanding change, basically saying, you know, we cannot continue with this policy. But to come back to the point that I started with, can the trade-off be overcome? Yes, and one way of overcoming is by going beyond the nation state, going beyond the state. Um, so if you think about free movement as a policy that's meant to be good for, for all EU citizens and you evaluate it that way, then the fact that there are particular trade-offs in particular member state doesn't matter so much because any costs that arise for particular member states are hugely outweighed by the large benefits that free movement creates for migrants themselves. So it, it entirely depends on what perspective you take. If you evaluate the policy from the perspective of the EU as a whole, then uh, you can live with this policy if everybody agrees to that. The trouble is, of course, in practice, and in particularly in this country, in Britain, um, free movement is often discussed, in certain, certainly in, in, by policymakers, as if, it had to be, as if it had to maximize the best national interest of Britain. And uh, so it's a very narrow domestic um, evaluation. And that's, in that case, the trade-off comes to the fore. Um, I, I, can, I think it's inconceivable, perhaps inconceivable is too strong a word, but I can think of no British politician who would get up in Westminster and say free movement, free movement is a great thing because it benefits Austrians or Polish people. Um, but of course, you know, that's what it's supposed to be about. Free movement is good for everybody, especially for migrants. Um, but I think the, the perspective you take is critical. But by going beyond the nation state, I think you can overcome the trade-off. Uh, maybe this is a, a good point to, to finish on. Just, Chris, what, what do you think of, of this um, possibility of uh, moving beyond the nation state to overcome well, this trade-off? I mean, I think, think in, terms of, um, in terms of policy making, I don't think it's defensible simply to take you know, only the interests of, of co-nationals into account and 
um, generally I'm in favor of uh, adopting a, a more cosmopolitan approach. A um, couple of things, I mean, on the, 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 the question, we, we've already talked about the non-contributory, contributory you know, issue with respect to welfare benefits. Um, of course, you know, Martin's right that, you know, this issue has come to the fore in the UK with a relatively you know, open labor market and a relatively non-contributory uh, welfare state. Um, but uh, although there's you know, a lot of popular perception that um, EU migrants to the UK um, are, you know, a drain on social services, a drain on the health services, drain on education and so on, um, all the evidence actually points to them being net contributors. Um, so that kind of popular worry, um, which you know perhaps feeds into some of the kind of trade-off arguments, um, doesn't seem to be backed up by um, a lot of the evidence. Mm. Um, Martin, do you have a last point? Maybe just a, a <laughs> quick last point, which is that. Um, I think Chris is right that uh, you know you you have to look at the actual costs and benefits, and certainly in the UK, the studies show that recent EU migrants have made the net uh, fiscal contribution. However, I think there is a second consideration that is related to this whole issue of non-contributory versus contributory welfare benefits, which is to do with perceived fairness of the policy. So I don't think it's necessarily uh, the main issue is not necessarily the hard fiscal costs and benefits, but how do people think about whether this is fair? Um, and, and if you look at um, social survey um, uh, data uh, across Europe and across the world, that in many countries uh, it is the case that many people feel that um, you know before um, migrants um, can receive welfare benefits or should receive, that there should be some period of contribution. Um, and they don't necessarily have the same expectation of, of their own co-citizens, co-nationals. And um, so I think that's why, again, social insurance programs that have that contributory element built in find it harder to also convince the public that, that you know, this is a fair policy because that's the way the system is designed. So I think Chris's point is important that we have to look at, the, at some of the costs and benefits at the end of the day and how much money you're really talking about. But I think there's something to this fairness point as well. To find out more about this topic and our guests, please visit the website talkingmigration.com. Now on to our next topic. In May last year, thousands of Rohingya refugees, a persecuted Muslim minority from Myanmar or Burma, were stranded at sea when Thailand, Malaysia and Indonesia initially refused to let them in. Here to discuss their situation is Sonata Reynolds, an international human rights lawyer and director of Strategy for Humanity, who have studied and talked to some of the displaced Rohingya community. Sonata, could you please start by telling us a bit about who the Rohingya are? Rohingya are an ethnic and religious minority in Burma, Myanmar. They have a distinct language and culture, and they are a Muslim community which is um, Muslims make up about, um, or they make up about 2% of the whole population. So, and Muslims in general are a minority in Myanmar. Unlike other Muslim communities there who may have citizenship, the Rohingya, their citizenship was taken away from them in 1982 by the government. And even before then, and certainly since, the government and many, many uh, nationalist leaders 
have said that the Rohingya actually have never existed, that they're actually immigrants from Bangladesh, and this despite the fact that they, I mean, there's evidence of them having lived in Rakhine State for hundreds of years, and many of them have documentation going back generations. Um, and they, there was recently, um, last year, there was a, a kind of a refugee crisis for the Rohingya. Could you say a bit more about what happened specifically then? Yes, so what happened was in 2012, there was uh, a campaign of violence against the Rohingya that was technically put on by the other uh, main ethnic population in the state they live in, who are called the Rakhine. So they live in Rakhine State, and it's called Rakhine State, and, and they're called Rakhine. The, they attacked Rohingya people, and both the police and the military either participated in or certainly did nothing to help the Rohingya when they were attacked. So more than 200 people were killed. Um, thousands had their houses either burned down or they were pushed out. And they were pushed into just desolate space, uh, but on trucks, many of which were government trucks, and left to fend for themselves. So I went out there, actually, after the June violence, and it was the worst um, situation of forced displacement I've ever seen. They didn't have even tents a lot of the time. Uh, they didn't have clean water. They didn't have bathrooms. You know, any sort of outhouses, nothing. And people were basically starving. That um, was reinforced in September of 2012. And since then, basically, the government has refused to allow the Rohingya to try to you know, reintegrate, to rebuild houses. Um, the Rakhine people have extremists have um, pushed this forward. They absolutely will not accept the Rohingya back into their communities. And um, that has caused massive flight. So since 2012, and really just in a three-year period, 10% of the Rohingya community, about 100,000 people, have fled the country on boats. And what we saw last year, around the same time last year, was a crisis on the water. Um, basically, there was a crackdown on smuggling and trafficking by the Thai authorities, which ended up meaning that the, uh, the normal places where the boats would disembark had no traffickers or smugglers waiting for them. And so the boats ended up sitting in the water. Surrounding countries, including Malaysia, Thailand, and Indonesia, pushed them back out. They did not want to take the Rohingya in, up to 7,000 people. So you know, we saw it on the news, people starving, um, people dying, um, ultimately people being allowed to come in after fishermen in Indonesia started taking people in. Um, but even then, all of the people who were taken into Malaysia were put in detention and they remain there in Malaysia. Um, you know, just they remain in very bad conditions no matter where they are. And, you know, there's evidence that uh, there are new smuggling routes over land that are, um, that are, that are facilitating the further movement of Rohingya who are suffering just awful persecution. I think um, so from, from what I've seen, those who fled last year and who were stranded at sea and then eventually allowed in, so the ones you just mentioned, um, so from what I've seen, there was a, a kind of arrangement that they were going to be allowed to stay until May this year, which I guess is now, so is that right and do we know what, what might happen? 
Yeah, so the, there was an agreement, or there was an under, I shouldn't say agreement, I don't think it was formal. Yeah. Uh, there was an understanding that they, if they permitted the Rohingya to come in, that they would be resettled out within a year. The U.S. has agreed to take in 52 of the Rohingya, and basically there have been no other takers. And this, of course, has, this. I mean, there are good reasons not to resettle the, the Rohingya out of, out of the region. You know, the Rohingya are going through ethnic cleansing. I mean, there is a, there is a demonstrated um, systematic effort to push them all out of Myanmar. And so resettlement out of the region in particular basically reinforces that. And so there's, there's, there's tricky issues and hard issues there. But also Europe, which may have taken in some of the Rohingya, is obviously dealing with its own refugee crisis and so hasn't come forward. Canada has come forward, but it'll be a small number. So most of the, the Rohingya who came in in uh, 2015 will likely remain there. They will have no work rights, no legal status, no right to go to school. Um, and that will be, they will basically join the first and second generation of Rohingya who went to Malaysia in particular, uh, in the, starting in the 1980s, who have you know, had children since then in Malaysia, and those children remain stateless. Mm. What kind of assistance do they get from uh, international community in general? Um, well, you just kind of mentioned a bit of it, but, you know, international organizations, UNHCR, what, what, what kind of assistance is there for those who are displaced? Yeah, so in um, in Malaysia in, or in Myanmar? Um, in both, I guess. So, so it's different in the different countries. So in Myanmar, where there's still about 140,000, Okay, so in Myanmar, where there are still about 140,000 displaced people, they have some access to food, clean water, um, and health care. I mean, you know, the main, the main issue, and shelter. But the, the access of humanitarians, so the UNHCR, you know, and other big international humanitarian organizations, is controlled by a small group of Rakhine leaders. And so they don't allow humanitarians and regularly... They don't allow them to plan regularly. They don't allow them to have a regular schedule. And while most of the people are displaced around the capital, Sitwe, there are a lot of displaced and other Rohingya who live in what's called northern Rakhine State. And they can't move among villages. They, uh, they basically also have to have assistance from the humanitarians, and they often don't get it. So conditions remain really, really terrible in Myanmar, um, in terms of humanitarian assistance, and people die because you know, babies die because they can't go to hospitals when they you know, have life-threatening illnesses that happened just recently. Um, in Malaysia, it's also unfortunately really bad. Out of uh, about 150,000 Rohingya who are there, 50,000 of them are registered with the UNHCR. So those who are not registered are completely on their own. And it's, I was there last September, and um, you know, the conditions are terrible. Um, like I said, you know, they have no legal status, no right to work. They are um, stopped constantly, basically, by the police and have to pay bribes. And if they're not registered, they are put in detention. For those who are registered, they pay the bribe. They don't get put in detention. That's one of the benefits. But they don't really, they don't actually quite acquire any other rights. So being registered with the UNHCR means that you have a card. But it doesn't mean that you have a legal status to stay. They are still treated as as you know not having not not being refugees, not being legally in the country. And um, UNHCR has some small, very small programs that provide assistance to Rohingya, but I mean, they're really 
it's shockingly, it's very little outreach. I mean, it was a big criticism we had of their program last year. Mm. Um, despite the conditions being uh, so terrible, are there still Rainier from Myanmar um, who um, who flee over to to uh, Malaysia or um, Thailand, Indonesia? Are there still people trying to make that journey? So we know that the boats are not going out this year. Or there doesn't seem to be any boats going out this year, and that makes sense given the you know, massive crackdown last year. The the um, you know, the filming, the live filming of boats in the water. But there are lots of indications, and it seems pretty clear that smuggling is still taking place. It's just going overland. So it goes through uh, Myanmar to Thailand, and then uh, from there into Malaysia. And just last week, there are actually 14 Rohingya found. They were abandoned in the Thai forests. Um, they had been smuggled and abandoned. So, you know, no doubt there's people still trying to get out. There are, um, you know, there are good reasons that they're doing this, uh, despite the danger. The people who are living in camps, and even those outside of camps who are in Myanmar, they don't have food, they don't have health care, and so they actually rely on remittances to get by. And remittances meaning, you know, people who are outside of the country sending money back to them. They actually have to rely on that to get by. And so it's really important for families to have someone who is outside the country doing whatever work who can send any money back because that's how they survive, unfortunately. Um, but the journey itself, you know, I'm sure remains treacherous even if it's overland. And, uh, you know, getting caught in Thailand means permanent detention. I mean, there, there's no other option. Women and, and children are put in shelters that they can't leave. And men and you know, young men are put into jail that they can't leave. That's why no one wants to stay in Thailand. Um, you know, there, there's really no assistance in Indonesia beyond you know local people, and then Malaysia, as bad as it is, and it's it's really bad. It's still considered you know, sort of if you can get to Malaysia, you're you're on your way to a better mm. life. Just to finish on uh, on you know the, the the kind of the politics of it and what uh, what might um, what the future might look like. So I guess there are perhaps two. Um, to distractions in a way away from, from the international communities international societies sort of attention to the Rohingya situation so one being the Syrian refugee crisis in Europe that everyone seems preoccupied with or well, preoccupied with but then the other being um, the kind of West endorsement of Aung San Suu Kyi who I think only today only recently came out and um, and rejected the name Rohingya, um, and instead sided with this uh, Buddhist nationalist view of seeing them as illegal immigrants. So, what do you think, given these difficulties in actually gaining perhaps some um, some political will to uh, to assist Rohingya? What do you think might happen? So, I think I'll deal with the in the most recent developments inside the country with Aung San Suu Kyi first. Um, mm. So, yes, her foreign ministry, which she heads, um, has asked embassies not to use the term Rohingya. So the government, as well as lots of people, lots of you know, nationalists in the country, their position is that the Rohingya, the name itself is made up, it's never existed, and 
they these are all people from Bangladesh, and you know there 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 are all kinds of problems with that. And I mean, it's absolutely not true. There was even the Rohingya state radio in the 1950s. I mean, it was called Rohingya. But on top of that, um, you know, this idea that it's about them having you know not having legal status in the country is really uh, you know destroyed when you know when you learn that also other um, Muslims in Myanmar, like the Kaman, who are you, who are citizens of the country, also are displaced, also have to, also are being treated as if they're not citizens, even though they are. So this isn't about, you know, sort of illegal migration, if you will. This is about mus- being Muslim. This is an anti-Muslim ethnic cleansing campaign, and Myanmar's government under Aung San Suu Kyi is moving it forward. The you know the you know the West in particular, if you will, was really invested in in Aung Suu Kyi and and trying to you know sort of prop up her her um, path to the government. And the theory of change was that you know let let's let's get her in, let's help her to get in, and then she will deal with the Rohingya. She'll deal with this issue. That's it's actually not a position I ever thought was viable. Um, she has made no indication whatsoever ever in her political career, you know, since being uh, taken out of house arrest, that she has any support for the Rohingya. Uh, that she thinks that they're even citizens of the country. It's clearly not a political issue, a, a crisis that she's willing to take on, and it's possible she doesn't think it's a political winner for her. It's not, but on top of that, it's quite possible that she holds the same. Uh, anti-Muslim um, beliefs that her nationalist uh, you know, peers do, which is really unfortunate, and it really needs to be addressed. I mean, there needs to be consequences for her government also deciding, you know, not to engage on the issue of Rohingya. They're not going anywhere. I mean, you know, they say they're from Bangladesh, but Bangladesh is absolutely disagrees. They're not from there, and on top of that, Bangladesh has no interest whatsoever and taking in more Rohingya, they have already absorbed about 500,000 Rohingya because of the persecution since the 1970s. Um, all of this is complicated by what's going on in Europe. So, of course, the the boats that, that go over the Mediterranean into Europe have many Syrians, but they also have a lot of different you know, nationalities and ethnicities and persecuted people on them. Um, including Rohingya, and this is another place where we're seeing you know, the, the smuggling passage change. Rohingya were some of the people that died recently in a boat that capsized in the Mediterranean on the way to Europe. Um, you know, Rohingya, unfortunately, they, 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 they get very little attention, even though it's clear ethnic cleansing. Um, as you mentioned, many governments are really... Um, have economic development interests in Myanmar as the country is opening up um, that trump the human rights concerns. And obviously there's also a lot of distraction with what's happening in Europe, um, even though, quite honestly, what's happening in Europe is very, very small compared to all of these neighboring countries all around the world that actually absorb you know, the vast majority of refugees, even with all the Syrians and other refugees who've come in to Europe over the last year, it's still only 6% of the Syrian refugee population in the world. You know, it's, it's very small, but it's, it's a huge issue, obviously, and it's very well covered, and it absolutely means that other crises are ignored. To find out more about this episode's topics and guests, and to listen to previous episodes, please visit our website, talkingmigration.com. 
that was all for today thank you very much for listening